morning. My name's Chet. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Grab your Bibles and go to Romans 1. That's where we'll start this morning, although we are going to look at a lot of different passages. We're in the second week of our All Nations series. Last week, we looked at this map. Not that one. Not that map. And what we said was, that, that's a map, it's from Joshua Project. The, I would encourage you, you can go to their website and check it out. You can also go to the IMB's website, they have similar maps. Um, but that is showing unreached people groups. It's, it's a map of unreached people groups. And as we talked about this, we, we stated three problems that um, David Platt listed, and we read through them. And it's over three billion people are currently unreached by the gospel. That was problem number one. Now, unreached does not mean that over three billion people are not Christians or not believers. Unreached means uh, that they don't have access to the gospel. Uh, as we said last week, it's, it's unreached does not communicate to you someone standing before God, but their access to the gospel. And so these unreached people groups don't have churches around them, don't have the Uh, Bible in their language don't have any sort of evangelical presence where people are trying to proclaim the gospel to them. Now, this is a map. Yeah, yeah, you don't have to go back. I just forgot that it wasn't going to be there for a second. This is a map uh, done by evangelicals. So there are places on the map that maybe have some Catholicism or some of the uh, Orthodox Church or whatever. But this is just saying these are places where we don't know of anybody proclaiming uh, salvation by, by faith. By grace in Christ. We, we just don't, we don't have that at this point. We said the second problem is that the church is practically ignoring the people and places most unreached by the gospel. That 99% of funds that go to missionaries goes to areas in the green and yellow. And, 3%, uh, and 97% of missionaries go to the green and yellow. Which means that only 1% of money and 3% of missionaries are making it to the most unreached peoples. We said the third problem was that the number of unreached people is higher today than ever before and will continue to increase until the church decides to change. The number of unreached people is higher today than ever before and will continue to increase until the church decides to change. This is what we looked at last week. So look at the map again. We said we've got to go. The church has to Get to the red area, and the red area is difficult to get to. Unreached peoples are unreached for a reason. They don't want to be reached. They're hostile to the gospel. Their governments don't want Christians there, or they're just in really difficult locations. They're hard to get to. And so as we talked about this last week, and we said that there's something needs to change, and the church, when I say we, I mean the church, but we're a part of the church. But the global church has to begin to pursue these areas. We have to change where our money goes. We have to change where our missionaries go. But one of the things that, that gets is kind of a natural response. I find that there's, there's two. One of the first natural responses is this general, that's awful. And I don't want to think about that too much. Because I don't really want to have to change what I'm doing. I, I don't, re- oh man, that's That's terrible. Please let us leave so I can go to lunch and try to think about something else. I mean, that really is kind of a, it's a natural, that if I think about it too much, the Lord might tell me to do something. If I pray about that, that he would call people, he might call me. So I don't know how, like, it, there's, that's part of it. 
And we've, we've got to overcome that. But one of the other responses is just kind of a, is that really how it works? Like we said last week, that there are 3.18 billion people in unreached people groups in the 1040 window. And that many of them will be born, will live, and will die, and will have never heard the gospel. Never heard the name of Jesus that they'll live, many of them, in really hard places, that they'll live in a functional earthly hell, and then they will enter into an eternal reality without Christ. That they'll live in an earthly hell and go to an eternal hell. And one of the, the responses to that, is that, really how, is that really how it works? Is that, is that fair? So I want to address two questions that I think are genuine come from genuine places as people consider the vast amount of lostness and the church's need to address it. The first one that we're going to look at is, doesn't God have a plan for those who never hear? Another way of putting that is, how is it fair for people to go to hell for not hearing about Jesus? Or maybe a way you've heard it put is, does the innocent person in India really go to hell because they never had a chance to hear about Jesus? Is that really how it works? How is that fair? That's the first we're going to look at. We're going to try to walk through that idea. And the second one is this. If we believe in election, if we believe in the doctrine of election, if we believe, like Ephesians says, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, or as we looked in Revelation, that he's already purchased people. We said last week he's purchased people out of every tribe, tongue, language, nation, people group, that, we, that they, they belong to him and that we can go. If we really believe that, isn't God just going to do what he's going to do? I mean, I got a lot going on. Can I just be trying to follow him here and just trust that God's going to do what he's going to do? If we really believe that, do we really have to hustle? I think those are two questions. I think those are two big questions. I think those are two genuine questions. And we are going to try to trace out an answer to both of those this morning. And that's, we've got all of our work cut out for us to try to talk through both of those this morning. Both of them could have uh, their own Sunday. They could have their own series. They could get their own books. They're worth looking at and considering. We're going to try to give brief responses, almost the beginning of a response, to try to help us start in the direction of this is how the Bible responds to that, and we can talk more as we go if these are genuine things you struggle with. But we're going to try to trace out an answer to both of those. So we all got to put our, put our adult pants on and get to moving this morning. So let's pray for the Lord to help us, and we're going to read through this this morning. So, Lord, we ask for your grace. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to hear, that we might trust your word and trust your goodness, and that you might help us to respond in faith and faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. First question. Doesn't God have a plan for those who never hear? Or how is it fair for people to go to hell for not hearing about Jesus? Or does the innocent person in India really go to hell because they never had a chance to hear about Jesus? The first thing that we need to see from the scriptures, I believe, is that no, the innocent person in India does not go to hell. The problem is there is no innocent person in India. 
The Bible tells us that there are no innocent people. There's no innocent people in Yemen. There's no innocent people in Casey. Romans 1. We'll look at verse 18. We're going to look at Romans 1, Romans 2, Romans 3, and then we'll look in Ephesians 1 at the passage we just read together a second ago. But Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, meaning that in our sin, we fight against what is real, we fight against what is true. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and this next part is key, so they are without excuse. That God has displayed his godness, his divinity, his greatness in creation, and that in creation what we do is we see that and reject it wholesale. Humanity rejects God's glory in creation. That in our sin and our unrighteousness we suppress this. He goes on to say that we then elevate other things, but he says this, we'll read verse 21, for although they knew God, They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That we choose darkness. That we can see and perceive the glory of God in creation and that humanity rejects that. And so therefore, God's glory displayed in creation is effective only to help us reject him and to make a conscious choice to elevate something else or ourselves and to be darkened. And we are without excuse. Romans 2, verse 12, he says it this way. As he's talking to both Jewish people about Jewish people and Gentiles, and he's trying to show them that even the law, understanding the law doesn't help, and not having the law doesn't help. He says, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So he's talking to Jewish people and saying, y'all have the law, and all that's going to do is condemn you, and they don't have the law, and all that's going to do is condemn them. That it's effective for them to perish without it, because sin is sin, and we've all sinned. Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, as it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That our position before God is a position of rebellion and rejection. And there is no innocence globally. Or as Ephesians 1 says, as Paul's talking to the church, and we read this just a second ago, and it gets really encouraging, but it starts very discouraging as it's talking to Christians. But this is the state of of humanity without Christ. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince 
of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is humanity before God, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind, desires of the body and the mind, children of wrath. That's mankind without Christ. As you begin to wrap your head around this, one of the first things that that we want to say, that I want to say, that I used to say, was that seems very unfair. It, It goes against my general sense of fairness, which we've developed very, very young. Nobody really had to teach you fairness. You would yell, that's not fair. We were doing something yesterday, and my younger son yelled at his older brother, He's cheating. He's breaking the rules. And we were participating in something that was not a competition and had no rules. He just suddenly decided, what you have done is wrong. You've broken a rule. He was asked, what rule? And he said, I don't know. (laughs) I could just, I could sense it. But we have this sense of fairness. And our two kind of understandings of fairness are... Fairness of outcome. Everyone gets a treat. Everyone gets a trophy. And we feel this. If you sit a bunch of children down and you hand out marshmallows and then you just skip two of them, there's this sense of, whoa, you forgot. <laughs> I need a marshmallow. This is, and you say, no, you just don't get them. It's like, uh, what, what, this is very unfair. There's fairness of outcome and fairness of opportunity. Everyone who works gets a marshmallow. Well, you didn't do your chores, you don't get a marshmallow. That feels fair to us. So we have fairness of outcome and fairness of opportunity. And when we look at the scriptures on this, we say, well, this doesn't feel like it fits either. It doesn't feel like this fits either sense of fairness. Fairness of outcome, we all get the same thing. Or fairness of opportunity, we all get the opportunity to hear the gospel and reject the gospel. If, if I knew that everybody would hear the gospel and reject the gospel, that would feel more fair to me. If everybody would be told that Jesus will save them from their sins and they would actively choose to reject Christ, that feels fair. Or if we all end up with the same outcome, that feels fair. And the, the response to this is, I don't think it is either one of those versions of fair. And Paul, in addressing this in Romans 9, says, is there any injustice in God? So he moves it out of fairness to injustice. He says, no, And the reason he gives in Romans 9 is that God chooses to have mercy. That's very helpful for us to see. He says there's no injustice, there's mercy. Because the problem is we're standing looking at this backwards. The question of the scriptures is not why does God not save some? It's why does God save any? And the answer is mercy. So it isn't fair because fairness is that we are all destroyed, dead in our sins. What we receive from God is grace and mercy. And there is no injustice because he pays the debt of those whom he redeems and pours out grace and mercy. So the response to this is to say, 
Thank you, Jesus, that I know this, that you in your grace have redeemed me, that you have offered me mercy. Even if you aren't a Christian and you're just checking this out or you've been around for a while and you're not sure how you feel about this, I want you to understand the grace and the mercy of God that you have even been able to hear that Jesus Christ offers you salvation if you will follow him. Because there's people all around the globe that don't even get that news. So there's a logical argument that helped me because I used to feel this. I'd say, well, it feels like, and I would just say, well, maybe God does something. Maybe God has some kind of plan for those who don't hear. Maybe God, you know, and this this idea is what's called inclusivism, which is this idea that, you know, Jesus has died to save us from our sins and that there's no salvation outside of Christ, but maybe God works in some way for those who've never heard him and he just includes them. As long as they've never heard, he just brings them along. But I heard a logical argument. I read it in a book, and it helped me because it pokes a hole right in that. And what he said was this. If you never hear about the gospel, and by never hearing, you're automatically included, if we believe those are true, then the absolute worst thing we can ever do to someone who has never heard about Jesus is tell them about Jesus. If we were standing somewhere and there were people, refugees, pouring off of an airplane, and we saw someone going to tell them about Jesus, and we knew they'd come from some place that had never heard the name of Christ, what we should do. If it's true that they're automatically in for never hearing the name of Christ, we should not run over and tell them about Jesus. We should run over and punch the people who were trying to. Because all they're going to do is increase the odds that this person will reject Jesus. They're fine without him, but if they hear about him, they might reject him. If that's true, then 1040 Hope is a despicable organization. And Empower One, who we're going to get to talk with later today, should be removed from our building. We should not call ourselves sinned in the Baptist church. We should refer to it as stay. It should be like three S's. Stay. Shut up. The reality is, it's insane to think that you would come to the scriptures and come to the conclusion that the worst thing I could do is share the gospel with somebody when we are told explicitly, consistently, that they need to hear. What, what, is, what happens to those who never hear? The answer is, they are not held accountable for not hearing. They are held accountable for their sin. We are not condemned for our lack of hearing the gospel. We are condemned for our choosing to re- reject God, rebel against him. And the Bible is clear that it is the gospel proclaimed that people need. If you look at Romans 10, love this passage. After Paul in Romans 9, and if, you're, if you have concerns about this, questions about this, read Romans 9, spend some time there. But after Paul discusses this idea that God has mercy and there's no injustice in him, he then says this. How then, oh, verse 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I want you to see that. If you have not placed your hope in Jesus, I want you to know that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He will not fail to save anyone who comes to him and asks for salvation and forgiveness. You aren't too far gone. You aren't too sinful. You aren't too broken. You aren't too anxious. You aren't too messed up. 
everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? So you have to believe in him to call on him. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? So he's addressing this question right now. How, how will they believe if they've never heard? And he says, how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. There are people who have not heard. There are people who do not, have not called on him because they have not believed and they need to believe. And in order for to believe, they need to hear. And in order to hear, somebody's got to go tell them. In order for them to go, God sends them and the church sends them. Paul, when he's writing this, he's going to end by saying, I'm going to come visit y'all and y'all are going to send me to Spain. I hope to be helped and sent along by you to Spain. Meaning that the church sins and goes and that somebody's got to proclaim this message. Because John 14, 6 says, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. That there is hope of salvation, but it's in the name of Christ. It's in the work of Christ. And it's in those sent by Christ to proclaim the name and the work of Christ. We've got to go. Second question. Again, that is not a full answer, but I think it is a helpful answer. Second question is, if we believe in election... Isn't God just going to save who he's going to save? Isn't he going to just do what he's going to do? When we talk about election, I know for some of us, we immediately freak out a little bit. But that's just because you're an American. And elections are stressful. <laughs> but when the Bible talks about election... Here's, here's the idea that, that it's coming with. Just try to define what I'm talking about. Ephesians 1 said, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, meaning that God did choosing, he chose his prerogative before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined. Predestined means destined is the end, pre is the beginning, so he predestined. Us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not ours, to the praise of his glorious grace, meaning that he offers grace. 1 Corinthians 1, 26, 29 says it this way, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standings. Again, it's a calling. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This idea that we would not stand in front of him and go, I'm the one who chose, I'm the one who figured it out, I'm the one who sought, I'm the one who, that's not how it works, we don't boast in his presence. Romans 9, though they were not yet born and had done nothing e either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. For as Jesus says it in John 6, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So the question is, if that's true, 
Why the hurry? What's all the fuss about? I got personal things I got to work on. Can't we just do what we're supposed to here? Well, the, the Bible turns that attitude on its head in an extremely encouraging way. The Bible doesn't say that election slows down our drive for mission. It says election, God's redeeming of those whom he will redeem by his grace, drives our mission. Acts 18, I love this passage. Paul's in Corinth, facing opposition. And Jesus, it says, The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I, I, you keep proclaiming this message. For I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. That's good, because sometimes that's not true for Paul where he's in places. So if he says that, it's like, sweet. For... I have many in this city who are my people. You keep proclaiming this message. There are people who are going to be saved. They belong to me. Do not stop talking. You continue. You press on. You don't be afraid. You stand strong here because we're about to do something in Corinth. And there are people here who are mine. I want to read two quotes about this idea from two people to us, well-known, helpful theologians. One's an African pastor. His name's Christian Lawanda. Maybe we don't know him that well. I've heard a sermon re-preached, and he said this, and I felt helpful. He says, preaching is not just a command. This idea that we're to go proclaim this message, that we're to teach the word, that we're to call people. He says, it's not just a command. It is a divine honor that we get to participate in what God is doing. It's not just a command. It's a divine honor. And the well-known theologian, George Garcia, who's one of our community group leaders. He said it this way. God's people are out there. We know that via scripture. And he has strictly and graciously commanded us to go and speak for him. What a wonderful, undeserving opportunity that is strictly and graciously commanded us to go and speak for him. What a wonderful, undeserving opportunity that is. They're there. They belong to him. We get to go. We have to go, and we get to go. By God's grace. That's the way the Bible treats it. Acts 13, 48 says, When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many were as appointed to eternal life believed. They went and proclaimed this message, and as many who were supposed to believe, believed. As many who were as appointed to this, believed. Which means that we have the freedom to proclaim, trusting God and his sovereignty to work out his gracious work to redeem. That we get to proclaim this message, and people will respond. Why should you be aggressive in sharing the gospel with the people at your gym? Because those who are going to believe are going to believe, and you need to, you need to talk to them. Why can you pray and plead for the people in your office, and why can you talk to them, and why can you go out on a limb to share the gospel with them? Because some of them are going to believe. Why can you knock on doors in your neighborhood? People don't do that anymore. Well, people don't have a wonderful message to share with people. Get to know your neighbors. 
Invite them to your home. Have a cookout. Offer them breakfast. Give them coffee. And tell them about Jesus. And why can we do this? Why do we go out of our way to do this? Because there are going to be people who believe. Because God has chosen in his grace to redeem and we get to participate. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.10. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. I love that. He says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect so that they might obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Why, why would we go? Why would we spend our money? Why would we spend our time? Why would we spend our energy here and there? Why would you, who don't want to talk to anybody, talk to somebody who you've never met? Why would you endure that so that the elect might obtain the salvation that is Christ Jesus with eternal glory? Why would you change your budget to support missionaries? Why would you endure that so that the elect might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory? Why would we learn a new language? Why would we translate the Bible in that language? Why would we spend the money and the effort and the lives to get to a place where people don't want us? Why would we endure that? So that those who belong to Jesus will obtain salvation and joy and hope and glory in Christ. If you believe in the doctrine of election, that does not slow you down. That spurs you on. If we believe that God is going to redeem, then we go with confidence, not trepidation. If we believe that there is hope of salvation for those in every tribe, in every language, in every nation, in every people, that they will all be gathered around the throne, then we go to every tribe and to every language and to every people and to every nation. Why? So that they also might obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Why will we endure it? Because we have brothers and sisters who are going to belong to us and to the king forever. And how will they hear? If no one preaches. And how will they preach. If they aren't sent. So we go. With joy and delight. And confidence. In the glory of a good God. Who redeems. What doesn't God have a plan for those who have never heard. Yes it's his church. That we would be obedient. And go. Trusting in his sovereignty. To redeem. And to save. Because he's good. It's John 10, 27, where Jesus is speaking. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So we go and we proclaim here and there, knowing that Jesus is going to work and bring about redemption. The band's going to come back up. And this morning, together, as a church, we're going to take communion. We're going to celebrate that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That we were, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. That we were guilty before God. That we were undeserving of grace. That's the reality. Not that God is unfair in condemning sinners, but that God is unfair in saving us. That he's merciful. He's not unjust. He's good. 
And that if we can sit for a moment and know the level of our sin and wickedness and sit for a moment and clearly see into our own hearts how despicable we are and be overwhelmed that God would look upon us to tell us of his son, to pour his love and his grace on us and that we might celebrate one more time together that Jesus Christ died to save sinners and that one day he's coming back to claim us. That's what communion is. That his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us, that our sins are covered by his work, not ours, and that we stand in the middle of two points. Two points in eternity. That Jesus Christ came and he died and that one day he returns to rescue and reclaim his people. And we have just a little bit of time here where we proclaim his death until he comes. And that's a reality that we're doing when we take communion. And that's what our lives are supposed to look like, that we proclaim his death until he comes. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners. So we participate in his goodness and his grace, knowing that he works to redeem and to save. So I would have you take a moment to consider your sin, to consider the grace of your Savior, and then to consider all those in the world who have not heard this news and to ask the Lord that we might be people who care, that we might be people who see that and that are willing to change our lives, that we would not one day stand before him and have our money and our time declare to us and declare to him that we were good Americans who lived lives of luxury and comfort and failed to see the glory of joining him and his gracious, eternal mission, but that we would be people who look like we believe this. So by God's grace, we're going to celebrate that he saved sinners, both us, and with hope to proclaim his death until he comes. If you are not a Christian, communion is not for you. This is something that Christians partake in, taking very seriously the work of Christ on our behalf. If you are not a Christian, I would invite you to call on his name and to be forgiven and redeemed eternally now because all who call on the name of the Jesus will be saved. Let's pray. God, I pray that it would be true for us that when somebody asked us to give an account for our lives, to, to give receipts to explain why we live and work the way we do, that we would be able to answer in chorus with Paul. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may obtain salvation in Christ. That by your grace and the empowerment of your spirit, that that would make sense of our lives. God, we thank you that you have mercy. That you did not leave us in our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion. That you did not leave us in a place where we hated you and loved everything else. So Lord, as we take communion this morning, we praise your name that you are good and merciful.